0: Welcome to Hope Community Church's Sermon of the Week. It's our prayer that this message will encourage and equip you to love like Jesus. To learn more about Hope, visit us at hccalive.com. Now enjoy the message. Good morning. Good morning. I go backstage, I come back, and look what's here. This is fantastic. I don't know how it's done. It's amazing. Wow. We've been spending several several weeks on many of the Psalms and today is the finale. It's the last one. I don't think we're going to have any fireworks, are we, Jed? Uh, there is. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> he'll, he'll figure that out. Um, as you listen today, um, you're probably going to say, haven't I heard that before? Um, and it may be true that that's, that might be the case because a lot of the Psalms have very similar themes. And um, I'm looking at my notes now and I, Jed preached a little bit on praise. He, um, regarding our prayer last week, and I, I think it's too late to borrow his notes on that right now. But, um, we're going to read through the psalm as we go through the sermon. But it, it can its a little bit loud. Are we doing okay for sound? I don't like to hear myself twice, uh, uh, my wife already hears enough of that, but, um. <laughs> We're gonna. I'm, I'm dividing the psalm into two, one through, verses 1 through 5 and 6 through 9, and maybe there's a different way you can do it, but it seems like it works well to see, to, to in a sense grab in uh, from each one of these two different themes, so even though I believe by the end of this uh, sermon, I think we're going to see that there's a relationship with all the verses, but between the theme of praise and joy and celebration, which comes through in the beginning, and then also about battle against uh, Israel's enemies. So, hopefully, a lot will come to light, but uh, and uh, so I want to go through that and see what God has for us. But let's offer one more prayer for that to happen, Lord. This uh, psalm is about praise, and uh, we have been praising you, Lord, this morning, maybe from our homes, Lord, when we first woke up. And uh, but here, definitely, Lord, with our singing, and may our attention, Lord, be drawn to. Uh, what your Holy Spirit has. I'm going to be speaking, Lord, but it's up to your Holy Spirit to make things known to our hearts and our minds, and only you can do that, Lord. So we ask for that. We ask for the move of your Holy Spirit in in each and every one of us, Lord. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for all of your holy word. And uh, we sit before you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let's, uh, we've got that up, okay. Okay. I'd like to read first verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Much like uh, Psalm 66 that Pastor Dead preached on last week, and like many of the Psalms, this Psalm begins with a call for God's people to praise Him, to celebrate Him. I'm going to use those words interchangeably. Praise Him in the gathering of worship, as you read that here in the assembly. Um, and also, as, as you see in uh, verse 5, um, Praise him when you head to bed. Praise him with singing, with dancing, with all the instruments that they had available for worship. Martin Luther once uh, said, it's very interesting, Martin Luther said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. And uh, I think he was thinking of the Christian hymns. Um, we don't have the same instruments, uh, as they did back then, we certainly have uh, some wonderful instruments and great musicians here. And our, we do make it our aim here to praise the Lord in music. But we always, no matter where we're at, let me put it outside of church, let me say especially, we always have to have at the forefront of our minds and our hearts how we actually treat God, how we act toward Him from the heart. And central to the way we do that, and we ought to, is to praise him. Here at worship, at home, at your, in your bed at night, and in between, with your spouses, with your family, with your neighbors, and perhaps anytime time, in all times. And we also realize, in the, thankfully, that we just don't sing to any kind of music here. I'm not talking about the difference between rap, hip-hop, and the style of music, but we make it a point to sing us before a holy God songs drawn from the scripture that are biblically on target. And I had a note in here, I just, I mean, that's the point, but I want to say, I'm sorry, country music lovers. You it, it can't, it can't do that here. Um, I smile whenever I'm driving and I see someone in another car belting out some song at the top of their lungs, even though I have no idea what song it is. The windows are rolled up. I can't hear a thing. When I drive up, I'm looking at you. When I drive up to you, I hope I find you singing and celebrating God like you do here in worship. Um, just, yeah, don't take your hands off the steering wheel like you do here. but But really, in the car, with or without anybody else in the car, what a perfect time to have good music on or to sing from memory. Anytime. Let's praise God. So in this theme of praise, we have uh, my first idea. We have cause for celebrating God. He's our maker and our king. The psalmist doesn't say let's praise him because he's our maker, because he's our king. But he does name these two things in, there, in his uh, psalm. Verse 2. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. So you Think about that. God created them. Yeah, male and female created them. But he also created them and called them to be his own people. In the same way God made us, male and female, from, from the time of Adam and, and Eve, from dust he called, and he calls us. And through Jesus, he's actually remaking us into his own image. And you remember, you and I can't do that. Not even by ourselves. We're the lump of clay. And we praise him as well for the great work that he is doing in us. So he is our maker, but also the second part of verse two, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. So that's another thing that he has in mind, his reason at least to pray, uh, praise Jesus, uh, the Lord. And yes, uh, same way, we in the family of God, we call it a family, but we are also one who are, is, we are before a king, uh, a king of majesty. And so we, we, uh, Realize that he's holy in himself, and he's perfect and just and, uh, in everything that he does and everything he decrees that we do. So we recognize him as our king, a mighty king. Two very good reasons. He's our maker, he's our king, that we honor him with our worship. That's what we find in this psalm. Yet, well, even while the psalmist gives us these two, he calls on the people to praise God, and there's many reasons to praise God. But the psalmist here is mindful as he writes of two particular and significant causes for calling God's people to get on with their praising, to get on with their celebrating. Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. When you see, I didn't write the word for. For is like one of those because words. You do this because, you do this, this is the reason why the psalmist is really thinking of of calling the people to praise, because the Lord takes pleasure in his people, because he adorns the humble with salvation. We have cause for celebrating God. He takes pleasure in his people. We've got to let that sit a little bit. And his people aren't simply the ones who can trace their lineage, their ancestry, to Abraham, and, and then to Moses and whatnot, as the Israel, as many Israelites thought. And his people certainly aren't the godless. His people are not anyone in this world. His people are who? Who What? What distinguishes God's people? There's many uh, but, uh, references, but Psalm 147:11 says. Again, here's the same phrase, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his mercy. So it goes for today. That word pleasure, I don't know, maybe when I read, the Lord takes pleasure in God's people. The Lord takes pleasure in, if you're in Christ, yes, you. We don't, you know, it's, it's a profound word. We don't use that, but this is the sense of how God feels toward his people. I, w- I want to say, you know, translating it to my own language, because that's what we do. We turn it into how it affects me, right? Yeah. I, I want to say that you are, uh, uh, who are his people makes God smile, because that's what I think about. That's what I do um, when others bring me delight, and that's what I see in other people. A smile that comes to the face. And that's what I'm thinking about. It's like, okay, guys, is that fair to say that I put a smile on God's face? I'm not sure, but it kind of gets me closer to understanding something of this joy that arises in God's heart because of his people. This kind of a God um, who has this sense of pleasure, delight. It's a far cry from what perhaps you have grown up with or have, under, have heard. Um, who, uh, Christians and non-Christians they have this idea of this God who isn't the God of the Bible, who injects fear and trepidation in you, who is cold and distant, who can't wait to trap you in your sin. We have this idea of a God who is an overly demanding micromanager and a taskmaster to obey Yes, he's demanding, but sometimes that's where we find ourselves, this kind of God. It's hard to imagine that we can please God. Especially when we look at ourselves and think, there's no way that God takes pleasure. There's no way that God has any delight in me. I sin, I disobey I treat my neighbor as a lap dog. I, I, I choose selfishness. I'm full of many faults. And I have to step back and say, God knows my faults. And he knows yours as well. But how can this be that you and I bring delight to God? I'm reminded of, uh, it's an illustration, the image of a little boy You might have heard this one, but let it be refreshing to you if if you have. little boy seeing his father in the chair in the living room, resting after a hard day's work. And he gets the idea that, that his father could use a glass of chocolate milk. Because he knows that's his father's favorite. So he heads to the kitchen, gets to the refrigerator for the milk. Gets to the cupboard for the glass, gets to the pantry with whatever brand Hershey's or whatnot chocolate powder is, makes his father a glass of chocolate milk and brings it in. His father smiles, receives the gift, and gives him a big hug. Behind the little boy in the kitchen is the worst disaster of a kitchen you could ever imagine. Milk and powder on the counter, in the refrigerator, on the floor, and he himself is covered head to toe. But what's the thing we focus on? The father smiling, taking pleasure, in giving the boy a great big hug. God takes pleasure in his people, you who are doing your best to revere him, to serve him, to obey him, to trust him, And to love him, he's delighted in you. Despite every reason you might want to think of that begs otherwise because of your fallen nature. What goes on in you as a believer? Or Maybe you can be dwelling on this. What can go on in you as a believer? Living out your life as best as you can to know that God takes pleasure in you, that he delights in you that you can make his heart glad. We have cause for celebrating God for this one great reason. We also have a reason to celebrate God. He adorns the humble with salvation. That's what the psalmist also said. God adorns the humble with salvation. It may be that the psalmist is thinking of the same thing when he uses both terms, you know, God's people or his people and the humble and, and why not? Because God's people are humble before him. And the word adorn here is, I, I'm not a poet, and I love this, the poetry here, it's, poetry, it's poetic, it's picturesque. It points to, and it's all God, it points to God clothing them, showering his beautiful gift of salvation on those who depend on him and look for his mercy to come upon their lives. This word salvation, I want to make a clarification because quite often it's, it's, it's our word as Christians, right? There's a word called salvation. Are you saved yet? Have you come to salvation? Are you living out your salvation? Um, so we always perhaps immediately go there, but in this psalm it, it, it doesn't necessarily point to that. We often Because we talk about salvation as eternal, right? But there is this other sense of salvation in the sense of deliverance. In the sense of an act while we're on earth of deliverance and a saving in that way. So as the psalmist has put this together, he's looking, I believe, at a situation that's going on in his lifetime. It seems that the enemies are, are real. That they're from other nations. That there are kings against them, the nobles against them, that they need to be delivered from right then and there. And remember, Israel was often at war with the nations that surrounded them. They read the history in the Old Testament. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the cause, that, this is something that they were told and that they also at times with difficulty discovered by being humble before God, he would, ha- he would have mercy on them in what they were facing. And this comes here in this psalm. We have cause for celebrating for For joy, for praising God, he takes pleasure in his people, and he saves them, he delivers them when they cry out humbly for his mercy. We also have cause for hope in God in the defeat of enemies. Let me read from verse 6 through 9. Let the high praises of God be in their throats, and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Let me read verse 6 again. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. I imagine a picture of an army shouting at, top, at the top of their lungs and moving forward, ready for battle. And why not? Why would not they be ready for battle? They had the praise of God in their throats, which comes from the faith they had in God in their hearts. That's why they could go out like this. And verse 6 here is a kind of uh, a transition point. It, it, uh, it has the sense of praise, but it also starts moving into what finishes out the rest of the psalm, the idea of, the, of God's people carrying out the judgment of God against their enemies. So that's a little bit of a technical thing for you. I hope you wrote that down. Their God was a holy and righteous God. Their enemies were anything but. The nations that surrounded Israel were built on opposing the God of Israel, and they had things going for them like unrighteousness, godlessness, idol worship, sexual immorality, child sacrifice, domination over their neighbors, but most especially evil. A little side note here: here's the people of God going out in the name of God to exact judgment on uh, on the on the na- on the, uh, the, the nations the enemies, they were being called into action with God in their side. But here's the point I want to make, because it's a modern thing for us to say partnering with God. I'm not sure if the Israelites would have recognized, oh, let's partner with God. I think it's better if we always realize that we join God, go where he is going, and we partner with each other. So let's be careful about the language we use today. Got that? Is that a yes? I, at least I heard one of you say that. That's good. But here's the story, and they would be front and center. This is the language of uh, these verses. They would be front and center in the battle. And they would go forward, as the psalm says, with a sword in their hand, executing just vengeance, just punishment, binding the enemies' kings and the nobles. It's a great thing when you could parade around the enemy's kings and nobles in chains, they would be carrying out the judgment of God on them. Judgment, which sounds like there's something about prophecy here, judgment written, as it says, to execute on them the judgment written. There are many stories in the Old Testament of God going out before his people, with his people, to win against their enemies. Why do the people go out? Why does anyone go out to fight their enemy? No, we can't just say that. Why do God's people go out? and fight their enemy, commissioned by God. It's the only valid reason. And why would they win as they did? God saw to it. Pause with me for a moment. Maybe if you can put them all up there, just so that they can dwell on them and I don't have to, they don't have to look at me, but I'd, let's see if God's, uh, if the Word of God can be up there, just so that you can dwell on, and as I'm talking, you can think a little bit more. As you see the language here, I went mean, just pause. I mean, I've already indicated it, but let's pause. Realize that the battle hasn't even happened yet. It's all forward-looking, still to be acted out by the people of God. When you see let the high praises of God be on their throats. It's future. In a sense, you also had let two-edged swords be in their hands. The battle hasn't happened yet. They were called to celebrate God, and every sword was still in its sheath. But what's the expectation here? Victory. You see it. Absolute and complete victory. In their outlook... Their salvation, their deliverance is assured. That's how Israel was to look out and was looking out at at this great and perhaps very challenging road in front of them. Yet to lift one sword. They saw the end. They saw the good and victorious end in sight. Why could they do this? God sent them. He went before them. He would be with them. And they're going to enter into battle because they know that. With God on your side, with the forces of heaven in your favor, who can stand against you? With God, you don't become afraid. You don't fear the enemy. With God... As I read in this psalm, you plan for their defeat, not yours. Is that an amen? Yeah. The, this language of the military theater and fighting in hand-to-hand combat, the language of having enemies and doing battle against them like the Israelites, it might seem foreign to us as a church because we're about love and peace and joy and mission and all of the good things there. But it shouldn't be, and it ought not to be so foreign to us, friends. Of course, you might have thought as you read this psalm, of course, the pastor's going to go that way direction. It must be in our vocabulary, this language, and in our plans and how we do life called faith. If you read the Gospels, Jesus' own words, if you read the rest of the books of the New Testament, you'll see that this theme runs through it. And I'll be pointing to a couple of things here. In the great battle that we are in, has become more clear to us in the church that is primarily against Satan and his forces. It always was and always will be. The church doesn't promote war on a literal battlefield as, as part of its commission to live out the gospel, but Jesus gave us new direction as God's people. He changed things when for us when he came and died on the cross and rose from the dead. He changed things when he gave his Holy Spirit to us, when he made the power and wisdom of heaven available to us, when he gave us new marching orders. He changed the things for God's people. As Christians, what do you do with people, real-life people who are unjust toward you, who make fun of you and pick on you, who take advantage of you, who steal from you or lie about you, who cause harm to you and on and on, who make themselves in some way an enemy. What do you do with them? We have marching orders to love, to show compassion, to speak the truth, to pray, pray for salvation, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. No longer is it an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth, Jesus says that. No, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Paul writes, when we are persecuted, we bless and pray for our persecutors. Jesus has given us, has given us as God's people, different marching orders. These are the kinds of the way that you and I are, and it's, we're called to, as hard as it might seem when we face those who oppress us and come against us. But maybe one of the things that can help you and me, these ways are not merely suggestions or good ideas. These are powerful means of meeting others, these enemies, in a sense, head on. Why can I say, why can we say that they are powerful When we go out and do as God has bid us, as our Lord has bid us to be filled with the Spirit, show compassion, speak truth, uh, feeding the uh, hungry enemy, giving them drink, this is meeting them on God's terms and in God's ways, just like his son did in submitting to the cross. And we now follow in Jesus' footsteps. We answer the enemy with faith in God, trusting that His ways are superior. There's also the spiritual aspect of Satan and his demonic friends and enemies. How do you treat Satan and his demonic forces? How do you treat evil power? You put on your kid gloves? Hey, how about I can meet him with fear and anxiety? How about giving in? Not at all. Providentially, I was reading a book this week, and this one theme comes through. Hear what the Apostle Paul says. If, if there's any verse that can work, there's many, but here's one, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, and 4. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God has given you something, a power to employ, which the enemy has no way against it. So, friends, wear the armor of God. Aim your prayers against Satan and all the powers and the principalities against the spiritual darkness in this world. Claim the power available. Pray in the Spirit for those strongholds in this world, the ones in this world, perhaps in your very lives, in your neighborhoods, in your nation, pray for these strongholds to be destroyed. We have... Weapons of warfare with divine power to destroy destroy strongholds. Friends, the music is telling us we better move on. Actually, we timed it pretty good. Um, I'm sure many of you are at least a little familiar with the armor of God and the kind of language, the musing about spiritual warfare and things. And if not, maybe it's time to get familiar, not out of fear, but out of hope out of faith, because we live in a time when the power and the influence of evil has risen and risen boldly. The time is now to be a church, which has done its homework, is praying, and is prepared and ready for the enemy defeat. Yet even if you have this understanding of the world of the Spirit and the the eternal conflict that place out on earth and how to go about engaging, even if you know this, the difference maker in you making a difference and seeing any victory is whether or not you have going for you what the army of Israel, I believe, had going for it. You see, the the army of Israel that was gathering could have had the finest, most durable swords, two-edged swords ever made. They could have had the best tactical planners in the world. Their chariots could have been the best designed. They could have had the greatest numbers and the greatest training in the world. But none of that would have mattered unless they had hope, unless they had absolute conviction, unless they were fully convinced that God was with them and that he could be trusted to achieve victory. None of what they had going for them would have mattered unless they went forward in undeniable hope. And from the sounds of this psalm, they did have this hope. Do you believe that Jesus on the cross defeated the devil, defeated the power of sin, defeated death? Is that a yes? Yes. Do you rely on the fact that he, quote, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in, the, in him? Do you rely on that fact? Do you believe that in Jesus you have, you the church, have the divine power to destroy strongholds? We are on the only side that matters, the only side where victory is secure and guaranteed. But it's about us having hope about the victory for today and tomorrow. It's about being humble then before God, that he will be victorious even as we trust him to be victorious in the end. We talk about the end times. Can't wait for Jesus to come back. He could be back any day, which is great. We believe he's going to be victorious in the end, but the, so that's our hope there. That same hope we have in victory at the end must be alive in us now for today. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, you have at least that one wonderful and main reason to hope that he will give you mercy and deliver you again today against the enemy. If he saved you, For eternity, he can save you in these days. Think victorious, my friends. Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the gift of your word and the gift of faith, Lord as we look back and see the stories of old let them be alive to us Lord and speak to us today help us to realize that your stories all these stories of salvation of deliverance of mercy showing itself are meant for your people at all times if we're going to be consistent with scripture Lord let it be that we live out in the same way this hope of the saints before us Lord, take hold of us. Receive our praise. Receive our worship, Lord. And we pray because of your son, Jesus Christ, all of his people saying, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Previous messages of our Act series can be found at hccalive.com. If you would like to partner with us, you have the opportunity to give at hccalive.com as well. Don't forget to subscribe and may we continue to love like Jesus.